Is God speaking to you yet? <laughs> I heard one no from somewhere over here. Thank you for your honesty, young Isaac. I appreciate that. You know what? There's still time today to feel God, right? Hey, I know Brian just prayed, but I just want to start with prayer. I don't always do that, but I'm just feeling like I need to today. So let's just pray again. Father, thank you for our, hmm. Father, thank you, God, for your people. Thank you for this church, what you're doing in this church, in this community, in this town. Thank you, God, for the family traveling in this weekend and the newcomers that are here, Father. Thank you, God, for every person you've given us the opportunity to interact with in person, online, however, Father. Lord, I just pray right now for a clarity of the text, that your spirit would come right now. Holy Spirit, we just invite you. Be speaking, be present. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, we are in a series right now called Keep the Change, right? And we this is basically just a conversation on ways to live coming out of the quarantine life. We all had to change our lifestyle a little bit when we went into quarantine, and there are certain things that came out of that that were positive. And so we're looking at ways of what are those things that we should keep. And so we're in week four of this, and we started out with talking about keep the pace, right? Living our lives out of a place of rest, learning how to say no. We talked about how to keep community, being really realizing that as we're social distancing, the things that we missed. We talked about keeping what matters most, love and relationships, specifically in families. And today I'm really excited to talk to you guys about keeping the discomfort. How many would say that this year, 2020, has been a little bit uncomfortable? Anybody? Come on, a show of hands. I've been a little bit uncomfortable. I've been a little bit uncomfortable this year. And so we're talking about keeping the discomfort and why that could be a good thing. But hey, before we get going, I feel like God gave me two passages of Scripture, and I want to start out with one of them to set the context of today. Have you guys ever been reading Scripture, and you came to that place where it was not just an ancient text, memory verse, something you're studying and trying to get through. It feels like a direct letter to you. Do you know what I'm saying? You guys know what I'm saying? Like a direct, like, dear Joshua. Listen to these words, right? And then da-da-da-da. And today, this week, as I knew about two weeks ago when I knew I was going to be preaching today, I, about, I knew where we were going. And I'll give you the spoiler, the, the cliff note version right now. We're going to be talking about loving your neighbor. We're talking about Luke 10, the Good Samaritan. But I felt like a couple this week as I was preparing, God gave me Titus chapter 3. And it was the perfect bridge from this cultural moment that we're living right now into the conversation of the Good Samaritan loving our neighbor. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles. If you have your phones, go ahead and pull those out. You can go to Titus chapter 3. And we're going to read most of this right now. I'm reading out of the NLT. It says this. Remind the believers to submit to the government and its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not slander anyone, must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle, show true humility to everyone. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled, became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy. We hated each other. 
but. And I love how the ESV says this. It says, hated by others and hating one another. Verse 4, but when God our Savior revealed his kindness and love, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. Because of his grace, he declared us righteous, gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. I want you to insist on these teachings that all who trust in God will devote themselves to doing good. These teachings are good and beneficial for everyone. Do not get involved in foolish discussions about spiritual pedigrees or in quarrels about fights about obedience to the Jewish laws. These things are useless and a waste of time. If people are causing divisions among you, give a first, second warning. After that, have nothing more to do with them. For people like that have turned away from the truth. Their own sins will condemn them. Skip down to verse 14. We'll skip the parting remarks. And he says, he leaves with this line. He says, our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Our people must learn to do good by meeting the urgent needs of others. Then they will not be unproductive. Right off the bat, I feel like Paul gives us two lifestyles, the old life and the new life, right? And just in those first eight verses, here's a couple of the words that he describes those things. The old life's described as slander, people that quarrel, foolishness, disobedience, misleading, slaves to lust and pleasure, evil, envy, hatred of others, causing hatred from others. Inversely, the new life is defined as this, obedience, ready to do good, gentle, true humility, the Spirit of God upon us, rightness with God, confidence in salvation, submissiveness, saved, washed of sins, trusting God, devoted and ready to do good. And if I was really honest with you guys, which I'm going to be honest with you guys right now, is that this week's been really hard. This has been a really, really heavy week on me. I'm not singling myself out. I think it's been heavy for everybody, just a heavy season. It just feels, and why I think that has been so heavy is I'm looking at this text and I'm seeing the old life given a voice everywhere. Why is this so hard? I feel like it's because everywhere I look, every conversation I see, every post I see online is just filled with slander, hatred, hatred from other people, quarreling, bickering, fighting, and it's taking a toll on my spirit. I don't know about you guys. I saw um, Aaron Radinoff, a friend of this church, grew up in this church and not that far away, but I saw him post this online this week, and I was like, yeah, me too, where he said, I feel like I've been so overwhelmed. I just found myself walking around my house, not doing anything, not going anywhere, just don't know what to do with myself. Thursday was a study day for me to get this message primed and ready. And looking back at the end of that day, I realized there was about three or four hours where I just sat in front of my computer screen, not being able to put out and write what I felt God was trying to say to us today because my mind was just so overwhelmed, my heart was so heavy. And I think that I am not alone. I've heard from so many people that have already deleted, taking a break, getting off social media, your news, your Facebook accounts, even more of you that are learning how to ban people, screen them from yourself, 
Delete them from your friend list. We're getting overwhelmed by this old life that's getting such a loud voice right now. I think the best that I've seen of all of this is I found an actual GoFundMe this week to go buy Facebook so that we can delete it. That's kind of, I might give to that one, okay? Let's buy Facebook and then just delete it forever, right? And why? Why are, why are we feeling this? Because all of our new, because this old life is just giving such an incredible voice right now. And the depressing thing about this to me is that it's not people that I don't know. It's my friends from high school, college, people I've met in the course of life and ministry, people in my community, my town, my family, even this church. It's personal. And so the big question that raises to my mind is why is this, why is every conversation or post a trigger? Why are all the conversations so toxic? And if I could go back to my eighth grade self and to more poetically cite the black eyed peas, where is the love? That doesn't relate with anybody. I'm, but you know what? Everybody online just thinks that is so funny. Just believe me. They're just laughing at home. Okay? No. We're willing to fight about anything right now. I think it's tearing us apart. So why is this? Why is there so much toxicness around us? And the thing that comes back to me when I was thinking about this is that I think that we are stuck on I. I think that we are stuck on ourselves. It's been so disheartening seeing this whole year, seeing real things, real conversations regarding rec racial reconciliation. COVID, wearing masks, not wearing masks, opening, quarantine the state. It's been so hard seeing real situations of hurt and pain being grabbed by organizations, people, being manipulated to be used to gain power and ground. And when that happens, I stop seeing a person, and I start seeing an organization, and I stop seeing somebody that's hurting, I just see a power grab, and I get angry. I really believe that this year is exposing things in our lives that we're supposed to prune out, cut away, holding us back from being the people of love that God's called us to do. I believe this year has been shaking us, uncomfortably so. Things that we thought were stable have been broken down and stripped away from us. And all because we're building focused on I. I said this a couple of weeks ago, and I think it bears to say again, is that it's so easy to forget that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit don't work for my agenda. I co-labor with Christ in God's will. Even Jesus teaches, right, Matthew 6, 9, 10, he's teaching the disciples how to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Right? We co-labor with God to accomplish his will. But I told you just a little bit ago that we're stuck on I. I want to set up this text conversation a little bit more if we go to Luke chapter 10, verse 25. 
One day, an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus by asking him this question, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replied, What does the law of Moses say? How do you read it? The man answered, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Right now, Jesus told him, Oh, sorry. Right, Jesus told him, Do this and you will live. Verse 29, the man wanted to justify his actions, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? We've heard this verse over and over and over again in the church and growing up. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this verse, preached this ver these verses, heard them preached to me. But something that I think I forget is that there's a presupposed system in this verse, and that's this. Loving others is dependent on me, taking care of myself. Loving others is dependent on me taking care of myself as long as myself is not building my kingdom. What does that mean? It's so easy for me to feel like I get into a place where indulgence will lead to a better me. And I'm not talking about treat yourself right now, okay? I'm not saying that you need to just pamper yourself and take the bath and take it to yourself and get your mental break and stuff, and then you can go and love people. What am I meaning when I say that we must take care of ourselves? I'm saying that there is a priority that God gives us in these couple of verses. Love God with everything we have, and then love your neighbor as yourself. We're first called to give everything we have to God. And then loving our neighbors comes out of this presupposed structure that's been set up. When we put God first, we naturally align ourselves to do the will of God. And we're naturally ready to be extensions of God's love. But when I put myself first, I position myself to hurt other people. I forget that there's a face behind the hurt and not all hurt has an agenda. I start looking to justify myself. This conversation between this religious expert and Jesus was going super well, I would say. This was very common in that time, right? The, Jesus was known as a rabbi, a teacher of great rapport. He had a big following, and so they would sit in the temple, and the religious leaders would come together, and they would talk about the law. And this was the common discussion, common questions of what's the greatest law? And so they go back and forth. And Jesus says, right, you've answered well. If only the Pharisee had stopped there. But then in justifying his action, presupposing that he had been doing something he felt guilty about, he starts asking Jesus for more. Well, then who is my neighbor? Who is that person? And I've been, I think we often think, I've thought, what is God doing right now? What is God doing in this time? What is God doing in a situation? All my life. What's God bringing out of this? We all know Romans 8, 28. He works everything for the, for the good of those who love him. But I very rarely ask the question of what's Satan doing? Because I think that God's not the only one that has an agenda. I think Satan does too. And I really, really believe that right now Satan's agenda is to cause diversity. Look at this old life. It can be defined as people that slander, quarrelsome, quarrelsome, foolish, disobedient, misleading, slaves to lust and pleasure, evil, envy, hate of others, and hatred from others. 
And right now, we have great, great diversity everywhere I look. And so again, I'm saying this is that indulgence does not lead to a better me. Indulgence does not put me into a place where I can love. Putting myself, elevating myself, putting myself first does not put me in a place to love well. Loving others is dependent on taking care of yourself as long as taking care of yourself is not building your kingdom. There's this book called The Screwtape Letters. I've quoted it before, but basically it's this C.S. Lewis classic of two demons. And one's the older uncle and one's the nephew. And the, the uncle is teaching and educating the younger demon in how to be good at his job. And he takes this satirical approach to the Christian life and showing us how to live. And I love this quote he says here. Whatever, this is screw tape talking to Wormwood, great demon names. He says this, whatever their bodies do, speaking of us, whatever the humans do affects their souls. It is funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds, but in reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And I think that Satan is working to keep things out of our minds. And what is that? People's faces. When I can swap out somebody's face for a political party, when I can swap somebody's face out for an agenda, when I can swap somebody's face out for a power grab, I stop seeing a person and I get angry. When I stop seeing a person, I no longer have to love them because they're no longer my neighbor. When I stop seeing a person, I position myself to hurt and to retaliate and go on the defense. And so much of what I'm seeing right now on everywhere is defense and fighting and it's not what we're called to and i'm not saying that there's not a place for diversity in our conversation i'm not saying that we all have to be single-minded and believe the same thing if nothing else something that this our moment this cultural moment is doing right now is bring out the reality that we don't all think the same and that's okay i talked two three weeks ago about the biggest trial that the new church had was circumcision they didn't see the same thing. They had a council that had to come together from everywhere to bring the religious experts to figure out what's the way forward here. And they had conversation. But I see very little conversation going on right now. I see a lot of slandering, a lot of quarreling, a lot of fighting. And I believe that we're supposed to be loving people. And that does not come out of the old life. Amen. I think there's a diagram from Dallas Willard that will help us understand this a little bit better. If you have the handout today, it's on your handout, I believe. Um, if you don't, it's probably online. And if you don't have that, then I'm going to explain it to you through the power of word, okay? Here we go. So you have God. And then if you draw an arrow directly down to the ground, you have us. God loves us. 1 John 4, 19. We love each other because he first loved us. God loves me. Enabling me to love God. I am unable to love except that God loved us first. We had nothing to qualify. We could do nothing on our own to be good. We could do nothing on our own to love our neighbor. Yet God loved me, enabling me to love God. And then because God loved me, I'm able to give my all to God. And through God, I see my neighbor and able to love and then draw an arrow from others back to yourself. 
I put myself in a community of love. And it's this reciprocating circular motion, this presupposed pattern that God puts is that when we, going back to the text in Luke 10, love God with all our heart, mind, soul, strength, we are able to then love people through God and then receive love ourselves. And going back to, again, when we elevate ourselves, when we search for our rights and our kingdom and, and get defensive about the things that affect us, we go defensive and we hurt and we do not love. But when we go through God, when we put our priorities right, then I'm able to love. I've used this one again, but it's so good I'm going to use it again, is that when we do this, this two-step approach, love God, love people, we are in line with God's will. When my car is out of alignment, what takes the beating? The car? No, the wheels. The wheels get worn faster, random, and they blow out. And when I am worn out, I'm mean. When I'm worn out, I'm hateful. When I'm worn out, I'm living the old life. I'm looking to build my kingdom. When I'm worn out, I can refuse to wear a mask in a store because that's my right. When I'm worn out, I can become enraged and start thinking about the conversations that were regarding racial equality are purely a political move. When I'm worn out, I stop seeing hurting people who need love. I see part of my kingdom being threatened, and I become defensive and aggressive. Why do we keep the discomfort? Because out of discomfort, on the heels of discomfort, comes change. When I'm uncomfortable... I change. When I have a rock in my shoe, I take my shoe off and I move around and get comfortable. When I've been sitting in the hot sun listening to me preach for a while, I shift my weight to get a little more comfortable. Discomfort leads to change. When I was young in high school, I never played uh, organized sports, and so I never got to the gym and had anybody train me how to, reach, uh, how to lift weights. I had a buddy in high school when I was about 15-ish, Austin Abbott, who said, hey, getting buffed this summer. I'm going to get a girlfriend. You on? I'm like, yeah, I'm down. Let's do this. And so me and Austin set out on a journey to learn how to lift weights. And when you're 15 and in high school and nobody's taught you how to lift weights, the only thing that matters is the bench press. Five days a week, we did the bench press. Amen. I know there's some guys out there that know nobody cares about squats, just how much you can put on the bench press. And so, early on, learning how to do bench press, it was very uncomfortable. I didn't know how to use my muscles, didn't know how to position correct form and everything. And I remember specifically one day, I was by myself. Austin was taking a cheat day, he was off, so I was by myself at the gym. I racked up the weight. I was lifting, 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 and I could not get it back up. I could, and I knew, and there was a panicked moment where I just knew that weight was not going back on the rack. It's coming right down on me. And so, pushing, pushing, and it comes down on my chest. And an experienced person who knows how to lift knows that all you do is just roll the bar down to your lap, put it on the bench, and get off. But me, unexperienced, not knowing what to do, didn't know that. So in my panicked mind, as I'm thinking, this thing is going to crush my neck, and I'm going to die because obviously it was like, you know, 800 pounds or something. Okay? I knew that what I had to do in that moment was tilt the bar to the right so that half of the weights fall off. Do you know what happened? <laughs> tilt, tilt, tilt. The place going, bam! The bar goes across the gym, smashes into other equipment. I get up and just walk away because there is no recovering from throwing weights and a bar across the gym. 
But here's the thing. That was extremely uncomfortable, <laughs> embarrassing, hard to recover from. But just as clearly as that moment is defined in my mind, I remember the time that I broke through the plateau. I remember the time that I was on the bench and that I was maxing out to see where we were at. And there was a certain weight, and I'm not going to tell you the weight because that's embarrassing, but there was a certain weight that I could not push through. And I had been trying and trying for a couple months to push past that weight. I could not push through it. And then all of a sudden, one day, muscles and mind clicked, and all of a sudden, I pushed about 20 pounds over what I had never been able to push past through before. Why? Because discomfort leads to change. If I had never gone back to the gym the day I threw weights across the gym by accident, I would never have pushed past that weight. If I had pushed, if I had never gone back and got through the embarrassment, if I had never gone back and pushed through all of that, change would never have happened. Why do we need to keep the change of COVID, of the conversations floating around our Facebook right now? Because out of discomfort comes change. I want to tell you one more story really quick of how this is affecting me right now. Probably about two or three months ago, uh, we had a vacation scheduled, a little Airbnb. We got away with my family, and we took it three days or so. And this is about right when everything, the protests and looting had started, and everything was just in flux, and fear was sweeping us again, and we didn't know what was happening, and we didn't understand what was going on. And I remember getting away and just feeling so much anger and not just anger, anger that I would say probably delved onto the line of hate. And it was that people posting things or people ignorantly posting things. And it was not at anybody specific. I just remember just being constantly filled with anger. And I remember on that vacation, I literally had to shut my phone off and put it aside and just take a mental relaxation on my mind. I remember God speaking to me. He said, why are you so angry? And when I started thinking about it and started praying about it and asking God to work in my mind and my heart, I realized I was so angry because I was building my kingdom and defending the things I had built. And it's so easy to think that we get our fulfillment through these hands. It's so easy to think that I can build my business. I can build my job. I can build this paycheck. I can build this life and be comfortable there. But what COVID has done and 2020 has done is shaking all of the things that the false identities that we've been building to say, this is where my fulfillment comes from. This is where my peace comes from. And those things have been stripped down one by one by one, but where I believe that God is shaking us this year. And he's exposing where I've been putting identity into other things than God. And so in those moments on vacation, I had this moment of God rebuked me and said, you're wrong. Why are you angry? And I had to go through the good work, but the hard work of placing my identity back in God and stop defending myself and start reaching out and loving my neighbors. I've got maybe six, seven minutes here before we finish up today. And this is where we're going to land. All of that was to set up our conversation about loving our neighbor. All of that was to finish out Luke chapter 10. And so I'm going to paraphrase Luke chapter 10. Basically, we left it off with the Pharisee said, Who is my neighbor? 
And Jesus gives this story, the parable, and he says there's a man on his way to Jerusalem and he's beaten, Jericho, and he's beaten and left on the side of the road, stripped naked, passed out. And a priest comes by and the priest sees the man. He crosses to the other side of the road and keeps walking by. A temple assistant walks along the way. He sees the man. He crosses over and looks at the man and then keeps going by. And then a despised Samaritan comes. And you know the rest of the story. The despised Samaritan loves him and cares for him. Washes his wounds, puts him on his own donkey, takes him to a hotel, pays the bill, opens a tab for the guy and says, if there's anything that he needs, I'll come back through and pay it. And just to wrap up today, there's a few lessons of love that we learn from the Good Samaritan story. First of all is the priest. Because even from negative moments, we can learn things. The priest... Why didn't he stop? Why didn't the religious expert of the time stop and take care of the man that was broken and beaten? They held to a strict religious law. And it said that if you touched a dead person, you became unclean. And unclean was a big inconvenience. I've also heard teaching where it said that this man was on his way. They would go and take turns of the temple. And how you were paid as a priest back then was not a wage, but food. You're given temple sacrifices to go home and feed your family. And so perhaps this priest was walking home with his week or month or however long would be supplies to feed his family. And what happens if he becomes unclean? The payment becomes unclean. And now he's lost his livelihood. And so what we learn from the priest is that it's sometimes, not sometimes, it's always, it's easier to be ignorant than to love. It's easier just to assume he's dead cross the side of the street and keep walking on then to, then to check. Next we see the temple assistant. And temple assistant here, what's interesting, he walks up and he looks at the body. He looks at the man. But then he keeps going on. And what does that teach us? It teaches us is that love is always a choice. We have all, I would say, seen hurt this year. And every time you see hurt, you have a choice of whether or not you enter in or continue on your way. And it would be embarrassing probably the amount of times that I've looked at something that's been a painful, hurting situation and I became the temple assistant and kept walking. Because, again, it's easier to build my kingdom than God's. It's easier to find, remember, my identity to put it into things I can do instead of the identity that God's giving me. And lastly, we'll look at the Samaritan. We don't got time to get into it today, but this was a Jesus picks an extremely racial, racially intense situation filled with tension. Jews and Samaritans hated each other. There was no love for each other. And they viewed that Jews viewed themselves as a pure-blooded religion and the Samaritans as a mongrel race. And I'll let you do the research on your own to understand that better. But basically understand that there's extreme animosity here. And so Jesus, as he often does, picks the most unexpected, picking things that go against your belief, picking things that would make you uncomfortable, picking the person that you would think is the enemy to be the hero. And what does the Samaritan teach us in this story? He teaches us this. Love does not presuppose. We often talk about unconditional love, but what we mean when we, when we say unconditional love, I don't know if we actually mean unconditional love. The Samaritan does not say, is this man worth saving? 
Is this man lived a worthy life to save? What did he do to get beaten? What did he do to lay on the side of the road? He just assumes that there's hurt and he can step in and love. Love does not presuppose. Love is dirty. The man, the Samaritan, gets down and he wraps and he cleans the wounds with wine and oil. You will get your hands dirty. You will get your car dirty. When you start loving people, your kids may hear cuss words because that means stepping out and loving your neighbor. That's not a good example. When you get in dirty, that means that maybe somebody that smokes a lot comes into your home and it fills your table with smoke. When you love your people, it means that you get dirty and it means it puts you in an uncomfortable place. Samaritan, imagine him there on the ground, in the dirt, with blood and sweat, his clothes bloody and sweaty from cleaning this man. Love is inconvenient and comes in route. When I see hurt, usually it's on the way to something. It's not when I say, God, today's Saturday. I have 9 to 10. If you have somebody for me to love, line them up at my door. I'll go out, give them a kiss, go back inside. We're good to go. Love comes at inconvenient times. When I don't want to be loving, when I have an appointment, when I have an agenda, when I have to go do something, when I have, I'm, I'm already late. I got to go. I wonder if the priest was on the way to preach something. I wonder if he was late for an appointment or a counseling session. And he can walk past hurt to go do the Lord's work. Love is uncomfortable. The man, the Samaritan, gets down and he takes, he gets off of his donkey and puts the man on the donkey. It might put you out. It might make you a little bit sweaty. It might make you have a little bit of blisters. Love is uncomfortable. It's not easy to love. If you've been married, you know it's not easy to love. You can, live on, uh, you can live on infatuation for so long, but at some point you realize that it's a choice. And you either keep choosing to love or things get off. And love comes at a price. The man took money out of his own wallet, opened up a tab for the, Samaritan, for the Jew, and said, if it runs high, I'm coming back and I will pay this. And Samaritan's story teaches us all these things when we look at how do we love our neighbor. One of the most important lines I love in this is what Paul writes, and he says, Our people must learn to do good by meeting urgent needs of others. Then we will not be productive. Friends, we cannot win Facebook. We cannot win our social media accounts, but we can love our community. We can love our town. We can love our suburbs. You can love the people in your apartment complex, your family, your coworkers, your liberal, your right, your left, friends, acquaintances. You can love your fellow church members. You can love your neighbors. You can love the person on the car, on the side of the road in their car. You can love the mom with two kids and hold the door open for them. We must be ready to do good. 1 Corinthians 13, 13 says, Three things will last forever, forever, faith, hope, and love. The greatest, the greatest of these is love. Church, let's pray as we close today. Holy Spirit, I pray for clarity in this message, Father. 
I've given Satan ample opportunity to misconstrue, misconstrue words, Father, to place agenda into this sermon, to think that I'm trying to call out, Father, to create more diversity. God of peace and love, I really believe, Father, that we're supposed to be a people of love, and that's what you're trying to transform us into. That's what you're trying to transform me into, Father. I pray, God, that this community, the church, and the rock, God, myself, God, would be known for, as a people of love. Lord, that you would correct us if we're off, that you put us on the right course, Father. Thank you for how gently you deal with us, how lovingly you receive us, Father. Thank you, God, for giving us worth when we cannot own or make our own worth, Father. Thank you, God, for giving us chance after chance after chance, God, to do the redeeming work of your love. Lord, help us to not overcomplicate it. Lord, highlight and open our eyes, God, as we fix our priorities on you, Father. Help us to see the people that are hurting, Father, in the name of Jesus. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Brian.